Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with me, Adam Collins, and him, Jeff Lemon. I'm in London, which means that Vidushan Ahantaraja can join me in my living room. We're legally permitted to do so. We're going to get Vish on to talk about the fact that cricket is back, or should I say cricket will be back, on Wednesday at the Rose Bowl in Southampton when England are hosting the West Indies in the first of three test matches. But I'm afraid to say if, 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 uh, if Vish were in Melbourne, he, he wouldn't be able to do this in, in, in your apartment, Jeff, because, uh, well, I, I shouldn't make light of this at all, really, the fact that Melbourne is now back in a six-week lockdown. Things have uh, advanced rapidly since we spoke a week ago. Yeah, at the time of recording, I think we've got about 30 hours left before that comes into effect. Um, case numbers are spiking, have been spiking across Melbourne the last few days, and with the way that the testing works, that's a few days behind the reality of where we're at at the moment. So uh, the there's been a stricter lockdown announced for the next six weeks and uh, it's it's right in the middle of winter. It's grey, it's cold, it's shit. It's, you know, <laughs> Melbourne, what Melbourne does in June and July. So this is where we're at and um, a lot of people will be spending pretty miserable winters alone. All of the kids who were looking to going back to school or something to do, uh, most of them won't be able to do it. Uh, a lot of the businesses that were about to... Um, start reopening will not be able to do so so yeah it's, it's pretty grim times and if you're listening out there and, and you're in Melbourne um, so am I so all, all of my sympathies and uh, good wishes to you. Yeah I'm only picking up this news obviously each morning when I wake up Jeff but is it different does it feel different this time uh, going into lockdown than what it did a couple of months ago when Victoria first shut down? It, it feels a lot more like Oh, God. Like, whereas the first time around, it, it, there was... People were relatively upbeat about it. It was like, okay, this sucks, but we're, you know, we know what we have to do and we'll do it um, to to get to the point where, you know, we had zero cases for quite a while, um, a mm. couple of weeks ago only, and to, to get to the point where we thought we were on top of it, only to be brought undone by some horny security guards who somehow managed to fuck the entire city into the bargain. Um, I mean, it, it shows how easily the thing can spread and you've got all of the other cities in Australia where, you know, people haven't been any more conscientious or, or careful, but they've managed not to have the, the initial bit of bad luck of getting, a, you know, an infection out into a smaller group of people that nobody knew about and then suddenly it's gone off from there. So, it, you know, it shows how quickly the good work can come undone, I guess, if you're anywhere that does have it under control. Um, you've got to stay on top of it or don't get on top of it, as the case may be. Indeed. Uh, we're just coming out of it here, obviously, with uh, Saturday having been the start of the next uh, round of easing, which seems weird again when you look at the numbers and I think 45,000 people have now died and there's still 
so many new infections per day. I think there were 600 new infections on Friday, something like that. So it, it's, it seems weird that um, we're now um, going the other way, but I suppose mm. that's, the, that's the cycle. So, um, and of course, there'll be cricket implications in Australia. Uh, we don't know exactly what's happening with the T20 World Cup yet. I know we've been um, waiting for this ICC meeting next week, but if there were any chance, Jeff, of them trying to pull this off in October, that's no. got to be scuppered now. Yeah, I don't think there was. I don't think there was any ever any will to have it in October. So that's just been a, a fait accompli that we've you know we've been waiting for it to be announced, but we knew it was coming. A bit like cancelling the Zimbabwe tour, which you know we've we've known for weeks really that that wouldn't go ahead, but that's been officially announced um, during this last week. That basically there's no point having Zimbabwe come and quarantine for two weeks on the way over quarantine for two weeks on the way back to play three one dayers which makes sense in this instance but it, it you know it doesn't end up looking good in the history of cricket australia not bothering to schedule matches against zimbabwe who haven't come to australia since what 2004 i think yeah and and and, and routinely they're scheduled to play these winter tours which end up not happening I, again obviously the, the circumstances around the cancellation are different this time they've probably called it a postponement they tend to do that. They call all these things a, mm. a postponement before they're eventually just quietly cancelled later, much like Bangladesh's test series a couple of years ago. That was notionally postponed. And, I mean, I suspect, as I think I've said before, I reckon the USA will play competitive cricket in <laughs> Australia before Bangladesh get another opportunity to. And, yeah, I feel sorry for Zimbabwe because, I mean, they were stuck in a bad spot here, weren't they? Had they elected to come out and honour their commitment, CA would have probably had to have hosted them. But, again, as you say, the, the quarantine situation made it economic not exactly viable. But also for the players, like why would they want to spend four weeks in quarantine to play three games? You know, that's probably not a good trade. It's worth yeah. it for a test series, but it's not really worth it for three one days. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I was thinking about this the other day because it's exactly two years since Australia were in Zimbabwe for that tri-series with Pakistan and, um, you know, social media notifications, two years on that, that kind of thing. And uh, it, it reminded me of something I was arguing then and, and, and probably will write about now um, or soon. Is that um, I feel like the rest of the cricketing world should be looking to try and do Zimbabwe a favour at some stage. They've slowly been getting their act together. And the tri-series, the T20 tri-series that we had there two years ago, worked so well. The, the Harare Sports Club um, is perfectly positioned to host uh, you know, an entire T20 tournament in the space of eight days. I like the idea of it becoming like an invitational, that each year Zimbabwe have two of the bigger nations over to help make some money because yeah, it, I mean, it's fairly clear that they're outside of the World Test Championship and they're not going to get many opportunities to play Test cricket. Certainly, um, they're not going to be hosted that often to play test cricket. There's the existing political mm. troubles in Zimbabwe that mean um, countries tend to be reluctant to go there for long tours. But if you're just in one city, that being Harare, fly in, fly out, stay in the hotel, which is quite nearby, then I think that's something that we should, you know, we could look towards as far as scheduling because one week in the middle of winter actually doesn't work too badly for Australia, for example, who often are on the way mm. to a winter tour or maybe on the way home from an autumn tour. Or, you know, you could make it a thing that worked for the Southern Hemisphere teams, you know, have have it as an Australia, New Zealand, Zimbabwe thing each year exactly, or, or yeah. get South Africa involved, where the Northern Hemisphere teams have, you know, their own things going on at, at that time and they probably don't want to be down there. Mm. But if, if you're in New Zealand in July, 
you know, you'd probably rather be in Zimbabwe than at home. Uh, one other thing that happened this week, Jeff, before we move on and do a bit of an omnibus of Australian issues and then get to Vish, is that uh, Sir Everton Weeks passed away at age 95. Uh, this happened just after we recorded uh, last week. So there's been a lot of fantastic cricket writing which has accompanied his passing. Some lovely obituaries in the newspapers over here and other cricket websites. I saw Bharat Sundarason um, described his interactions with Weeks as being the youngest mm. 95-year-old that ever lived and I thought that was quite apt when you look at the piece that Ian Chappell wrote as well which talked about his sort of zest for life well after his playing career but of course one of the famous three W's who revolutionised West Indian cricket after the war. Yeah, so there's that trio if you're not familiar with West Indies cricket in the 40s and 50s, which perhaps not everybody is, um, Everton Weeks, Frank Worrell and Clyde Walcott who were three great players. Weeks is someone who... I've been looking at on the record list for so long because every time a player puts a run of hundreds in consecutive innings together, you go, oh, that's his third hundred on the trot or, you know, um, in, in test cricket, then you start to think, oh, I wonder, I wonder where that is on the record list. You look it up and there's always that staggering number that Everton Weeks made five in a row, five <laughs> consecutive innings that he made a test hundred in and famously uh, strongly believed that it should have been six, but he was given uh, run out by a, a local umpire when he was touring India when he was 90 mm. um, going in for his for his 600 and he's also on the most 50 plus scores he's got seven consecutive innings because that streak of five tons he started off with a couple of half centuries before that as well so um, I think the 90 was at the start of that streak actually from memory so uh, that's the kind of incredible consistency that he was able to bring uh, to to his test game and you know that's that's the kind of uh, doggedness and enthusiasm that he brought to his cricket and, and to his life. Yeah, wonderful sort of famous legacy and it's appropriate really that, that England are hosting the West Indies at the moment so there's always a tension around the, the rivalry between uh, the two nations uh, you know, historically and, uh, and that includes uh, the involvement of West Indian cricketers in, in league cricket and so Scott Oliver wrote a great piece about Everton Weeks' time in Lancashire League cricket and the astonishing numbers that he posted there but that was quite common practice that West Indian players would, would play league cricket and make far more money doing that than they were able to earn uh, playing international cricket at the time. So there's a lovely link mm. between the two countries. They're playing for the Wisdom Trophy uh, this week, So, uh, and I'm sure there'll be a number of opportunities uh, through that series to honour the, the vast legacy of Sir Everton Weeks, who died at the age of 95. Jeff, I said we'll do a quick run-through of Australian issues and then come to Vish. One that came up this week almost unexpectedly but is linked to the England series is the Warner captaincy ban. So how this occurred was that Ben Stokes was mm. named as England's 81st Test Captain because Joe Root uh, is missing this week on account of the fact that his wife's uh, scheduled to give birth to their second child. So Stokes becoming captain. Jeff, you're of course you're writing a book about the idea of um, Stokes and Smith and, and Warner and their recoveries. We won't call it redemption because we, we covered that off last week but their, their comebacks mm. from uh, what occurred um, to them in 2017 and 2018 respectively. But Pete Lawler quite astutely in my view um, was, was uh, able to sort of draw a line between the idea that Stokes is becoming England's captain a few years after the embargo debacle and David Warner is banned for life for what happened at Newlands. Now, from my perspective, you I mean, that was a crazy old week in, in Cape Town and, and Johannesburg, as we both remember very, very well, we'll never forget. And, and at the time, the punishments uh, that we focused on really were that Warner and Smith were going to miss 12 months of cricket and the two-month leadership ban for Smith. But the lifetime leadership ban for Warner, I think as time's gone on, has, has jarred more 
more and more. Um, and look, he probably won't captain Australia again anyway, right? It's a moot point. But and I know that he had a um, he, he he didn't do himself any favours with administrators in the immediate aftermath um, when they were when they were sort of in, in interrogating what happened in the dressing room, and he um, you know may have told a version of events that didn't line up with Bancroft and Smiths, but which mustn't have helped. <laughs> um, but I mean, aren't we far enough away from this? Very now diplomatic, that, Adam. yeah, I know. Aren't we far enough far enough away from this now, though, Jeff? And I'd be grateful for your perspective on this. I don't think we've talked about this. That we can reevaluate whether a lifetime ban from captaincy. Remember that extends to big bash and state cricket and everything else. Um, it might have, on reflection, it might have been more astute to have given him the same leadership ban as Smith. Mm, no, I don't agree because I I think that. I mean, I don't really think Smith should be considered as the captain again either. And I thought that the way that they gave him that ban of a couple of years, but, you know, let it expire was was basically guaranteeing to set up problems in the future with all of the talk that there will keep being about Will Smith captain again. And, you know, frankly, who cares? It's a but it's going to be one of those topics yep. that a million articles will be written about over the next few years probably. Um, where Australia really needs to look to the next generation of leaders anyway. You know, Warner's 33. He's, uh, so I suppose the thinking was they needed to do something to demonstrate that he was more at fault without being seen to go soft on any either of the other two. There was very much a, a lot of public messaging in the bands. It was Bancroft gets nine months rather than 12, which didn't make a massive practical difference, but it gave him half of the Shield season. It meant that he could come back in the next Australian summer rather than have to wait till it was done. And that kind of hinted that, okay, well, he's he's the least responsible, Smith's the next least responsible and warns the most. But I, I just don't think that you could credibly have Warner captaining an Australian side after what happened and expect that it should be all right just because a couple of years have gone by. You know, the, Warner at the time was absolutely on the brink of being completely expelled. You know, there were other players in the team were angry with him, getting them into trouble. There was a lot of discontent about him as a person, I guess, um, in the inner sanctum. And so really it was... The CA board sort of going out on a limb to say we will let you come back if you if you're good enough. We're not going to end your career right here and now. But that was a very real consideration that they could have done that. They could have chopped it off and just said no, he's done. He won't play for Australia ever again. And and honestly, at the time, I thought that was probably going to happen with the the ill will there was towards him in the Australian team. They've managed to patch that up, but I think there has to be some lasting legacy that says, you know, that the person who cooked up this idea cannot be given a formal leadership position. Yeah, I, I understand that perspective. I suppose what I would respond with is that ball tampering, as we know, and as we've talked about mm. many times on the final word, is widespread. Warner was dumb enough yeah. to hatch a plan that got caught on from by 37 super sport cameras, absolutely. And <laughs> um, yes, Warner had form, disciplinary issues in, in the past, albeit most of them well before that South African tour. And there was a lot of other stuff going on over there. But I just feel as though like from a cricketing perspective and maybe it shouldn't be viewed through this lens but Faf Duplessis didn't ever serve a minutes ban when he was ball tampering he got to Captain no. South Africa routinely and no one's ever experienced a ban like it now they missed 12 months of cricket which was a massive uh, far bigger than any potential leadership ban I mean the missing 12 yeah. months of cricket that was huge it was unprecedented so I feel like with that 
um, having been served mm. and now the two years having expired as it did with Smith so technically Smith could captain now that look it's a moot point because I doubt the board will ever reconsider this but in saying that per Chris Barrett's story last week maybe the board will be um, shaken up by the states at some stage which might mean that some decisions that were made historically might be revisited but and this shouldn't be part of it but I mean from a pure hard edge cricket perspective if Tim Payne twists his ankle on a cricket ball 10 minutes before the toss uh, when Australia next turn out for a test match I mean you could argue, and I think from a cricket perspective, if just the pure mechanics of uh, operating a game, Warner would be just as credible as anyone else to do that job from a cricket perspective. I mean, but again, I, I know that it goes to far more than that. And I don't want to be um, sort of held to the idea that that's all I'm saying. But yeah, it, it, I think there's just more to it than the idea that he hatched a plan, mm. he got caught, therefore he's banned for life from this job. I think now with a couple of years hindsight, we can acknowledge the fact that the, 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 the environment those decisions were made in was heightened. Um, it was a crazed state, uh, as, we, as you mm. documented well in your book. There was nothing ever like it before in Australian sport. So I think we need to now, with sort of clearer eyes, understand that it, it's, it's worth, I think, looking at whether we got that absolutely right. Yeah, but I, I don't think it's just about having hatched a plan to cheat. I think it's about having deliberately chosen to bring in the most junior and vulnerable player in the team to do it. Um, it's about potentially having kicked a hole in that guy's career because, you know, Cameron Bancroft's international career isn't um, exactly back up and running. And it's about having conspired to conceal the truth about it because the main reason they came in and told the lies in the press conference and all the rest of it was to protect Warner from maybe getting banned for the next game because he was on a, he, he had enough disciplinary points in the bank that he was at risk of missing the next test. And so that's what they were worried about at that point. And so all of that was, that was all coming from Warner. So I I think mm. he did a lot more wrong there than ball tampering. Um, totally fine for him. But doesn't that go to the idea that at the time, and again, this this is uh, borne out in the press conference that Smith and Bancroft did, nobody, nobody would have anticipated that a, a ball tampering charge would bring that no. kind of... And I'm not saying that's the right or wrong thing. I'm not passing a moral judgment here. Purely that yeah. um, the, the world we were operating in in March 2018 before this all blew up wasn't mm. that a player would be banned for a year, nor two, no. the captain and vice-captain, and another guy for nine months. Like that, that wasn't a conceivable scenario, which means that when they were sitting in the dressing room, um, not privy to the sort of, I guess, Twitter backlash, for want of a better term, that was going on overnight in Australia, I mean, there was no way of um, assessing that at four in the morning anyway, um, that they would have thought their main consideration probably would have been, oh, how do we get this down to the point where nobody gets pinged for a test match because of what they saw with Duplessis the previous year? Yeah, and, and that's exactly what they were thinking at that stage. But I still think that's that's the cause of the problem. That's where the real part of the offence lies. It's it's not in ball tampering. It's in not saying, oh, bugger, we got caught. All right, well, you know, own up and, and be done with it. It was about I'm going to compound that offence by doing more and more, you know, by, by lying to all and sundry and, you know, lying to the investigators and whatever else went on to try to not get in any more trouble for this. You know, that's that's where the real problem was and that's where there's a, a massive trust deficit that you can't then expect to say, I want to be in a position of authority as the leader of the team when, you know, that's my fairly recent history. Yeah, it's all academic anyway and like Justin Langer had this put to him during the week after Pete's piece so that, you know, the Stokes announcement was made, Pete wrote his article there was a couple of days of debate and, and Langer did a press conference and uh, look, he, he made it fairly clear that he doesn't anticipate a scenario where it would happen anyway but said that Warner as far as he's concerned is um, in the ranks and happy in the ranks and he's happy with Warner being in the ranks and then he 
hit a bung note, Jeff, by comparing him to Floyd Mayweather. Now, I can, you know, from a sporting perspective, I mean, I don't know anything about boxing or don't these days anyway, but um, the, uh, you know, I, 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 I think I know what he was trying to say, but not the right person to link any Australian cricketer to if you're the Australian coach, if you have any understanding of the, the, the broader rap sheet around that bloke. Yeah, this is a weird one. So what Langer said was, his exact quote was, having David Warner in the team is like having Floyd Mayweather in the team. I love him. He talks it up. He's a great player by any calculations. That's the end of the quote. So I could give him some benefit of the doubt to say Mm. he's he's talking about the showmanship and the flashiness and whatever. But but the, the issue with Floyd Mayweather is that he is an absolute flat out piece of shit. He is a terrible human being. He's a repeat violent, assaulter of women he's been arrested or charged for seven different assaults on five different women and had police attend and been accused of any number of other assaults as well he's been found guilty of four of those assaults he's pleaded guilty to two and um, got found guilty of uh, during another trial and he's basically managed by having a lot of money and lawyers to get suspended sentences or community service and not really have any repercussions and also to have this extremely successful a crazily successful sporting career where he's being paid I think it was you know over a hundred million dollars on the pay-per-views for some of his fights and so you know there are all of these people out there who just see him as an athlete and somehow manage to not know this story even though it's so broadly known even Mm. though he's spent time in jail for assaulting you know not just one of the mothers of his kids but two of them in in two different instances his his rap sheet's horrific in the things that he's done and, and it's all out there it's all on the public record so Obviously, Justin Langer wasn't thinking of anything like that, but the fact that there wasn't that awareness of it means it's it's a it's a pretty horrendous comparison to make, and it's a pretty horrendous person to cite as as anything with anything positive about them. You know, he's Floyd Mayweather is a, a shocking human being and shouldn't be able to earn a dollar from anything that puts him up in front of people, up in front of an audience. Off the field, Jeff, uh, Cricket Australia and the Australian Cricketers Association have broken bread during the week around their revenue projections for the next year. Now, this comes up each year uh, when CA essentially reveal to the ACA the amount of revenue there is, which in turn reflects the amount of money they get from their revenue sharing agreement, which was signed a couple of years ago. But Jeff, this could have easily turned into yet another stash between the organisations because of coronavirus, but they've found a way through uh, and uh, they've moved on. Well, it's been a stash. It's been going on for several months. And it's seen the departure of the CEO for insisting that the the very reduced revenue projections that uh, that his organisation was putting forward were the ones that would be used to calculate how much the players would be paid. What we've ended up with is CA backtracking on the very reduced projections and going with pretty much the, the projections that would have happened had COVID not intervened. Because at the moment there there isn't any cricket that we know to have been lost and therefore there isn't a great deal of revenue that we know to have been lost so obviously there will be financial impacts on CA in terms of the extra costs of of putting on safe matches and and all the rest of it but the the probability or the the way it looks at the moment is that things will go ahead relatively um, unscathed which means that there shouldn't be too vast a a dip in revenue. And and Jeff you were saying you really enjoyed the language that was used from both organisations when trying to explain that well really no one was at fault. Yeah, so this this is my nomination for the CBUS Super Performer of the Week is whoever wrote this sentence uh, CA has agreed to withdraw its June 2020 notices containing its revised revenue forecast and in its place roll over its pre-coronavirus forecast 
the ACA has agreed to withdraw its notice of dispute. Both parties have done so without admission. And I love that line. Both parties have done so without admission. So they're saying, oh, I mean, we, we've now completely changed the um, forecast for the amount of money we think we'll make, but that's not anybody's fault. Um, so that's just a little bit of insurance that's been taken out. And uh, that's very related to CBUS because their uh, investments, products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of the building and construction industry, <laughs> including fit for purpose insurance. It's all about having fit for purpose insurance. Go to cbussuper.com.au, get a PDS and remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Beautifully done, beautifully summed up. But Jeff, I can hear at my front door Vedushan Ahantaraja, which is most exciting. He'll be with us after we take a quick breather. It's nice on the show to get to talk about good people doing good things. And Adam, I know you've been doing a bunch of stuff in the last few weeks with the Lord's Taverners campaign. Can you tell me what they're about, what they do? Yeah, Jeff, I'm thrilled that the Lord's Tavern is now going to be working with us here at The Final Word. They're the UK's leading youth cricket and disability sports charity. They've been going since 1950 and they do a whole bunch of work year on year to support some of the most marginalised and at-risk people in the UK. So they use sport uh, as a, a bridge to a better life, I suppose, and they use cricket specifically as that vehicle. So, um, for example, they've got like table cricket, which is a, a game which is used on a table tennis table for those with severe learning and physical disabilities disabilities, giving them a chance to engage with the game that we all love. But Jeff, at the moment, the, the challenge, of course, is that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and all the wonderful programs they do at Lord's Taverners year on year for 12,000 young people. So we're looking at in addition to those who are living with disabilities, other at-risk communities in the UK, so they're tackling issues such as knife crime, unemployment and radicalisation and isolation. And I suppose, Jeff, when you drill down to the, one of the biggest issues that, that is affecting all of us uh, right now, it's, it's isolation and Lord's Taverners are, are, are tackling that square on. Yeah, they're talking about the their isolation campaign. They've, they've got a campaign running called Isolate, um, talking about the having awareness of, of the impact of isolation and loneliness. But what jumped out at me from the information that they sent through was that the, the very true fact that isolation is something that people living with disabilities live with at, at, at much greater levels than others where they're saying 77% of young disabled people report feeling lonely and 85% of young disabled adults and, and that disabled kids are, are twice as likely to be lonely compared to non-disabled peers. So that, it's a really stark reminder that that there can be so many other ramifications to living with disability and, and you know, feeling alone is, is one of the most pernicious and, and damaging things that the human beings go through. Yeah, so where Lord's Taverners are normally providing this fantastic outlet summer on summer, it's very, very tough at the moment. So anything that we can do to support an organisation like the Lord's Taverners, who have been around for 70 years now, 1950, they're absolutely outstanding human beings doing great things. It's a wonderful time to engage. So lordstaverners.org is their website. And the Isolate campaign, the idea of it is, if you donate eight pounds or eight dollars on their website, um, then you nominate eight people um, to also do the same thing. That will help the Lord's Taverners raise the vital funds they need to spread the word of their program so lordstaverners.org and support the isolate program it's most important work we'll have all those details in the show notes hi my name's kate cross and you're listening to the final word with adam and jeff
Here's the final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And to my left, at a socially distanced space away, is cricket writer, cricket sports features writer, actually, I should say, these days, the independent in the UK, Vidushina Hansraj, a friend of the show, been with us many times before. First time since you've had your new job, and you're about to go into the bubble at Southampton for the first test match. How are you feeling? Um, well, firstly, thanks for having me. Um, secondly, I don't know, a little bit nervous. I had my um, my COVID test on Saturday at the Oval, um, and I kind of realised that having had the test, that the onus was on me to be as safe as possible. Otherwise, I would be bringing something into this bubble. And, you know, the three of us, we've all covered cricket for a long time, and I suppose the, the responsibility on us is to, is to do our own jobs. But then when you have the added, added jeopardy of potentially bringing down a multi-million pound operation <laughs> <laughs> through just coming into contact with someone you shouldn't be, um, yeah, you, you kind of impart a bit more nerves than just wondering where you can spaff a thousand words from. So they actually put that to you today. They said to you that if you uh, do the wrong thing between when you're tested and when you go into the, into the exclusion zone, uh, that you know, that you might be the man responsible for pulling the whole thing down. They were that explicit with you. Well, it was interesting because um, we had a, a briefing with the ECB about a week and a half ago um, and they kind of, uh, not necessarily allayed our fears because they, they are, in terms of the protocols and safety, they really are rolling out the red carpet. But they kind of, we had a Zoom call and they were talking about you know how it would all work we basically walk in we'd basically go into a part of the ground which they would describe as a tunnel whereby we wouldn't interact with anyone who's actually involved with the game and invo- or involved with putting on the game um and so we we kind of we had the chance to ask some questions about what we can do because a lot of us are staying outside of the bubble overnight um about 20 minutes away and they were like look you know be responsible and then unlike the UK government they explained what responsible meant and it was you know don't if it seems like a risk don't do it if you're if you're wary about meeting someone in a pub if you know someone locally and you're you're a bit unsure don't do it um because yeah as I said before they they've really gone above and beyond to kind of get us through and I think the the very least we could do is is appreciate the fact that um we don't want to be an added risk factor for them to consider and it's difficult because I know that when you go to Southampton, the first impulse is just to lick everything. You know, you just want to lick every surface. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very slurpy sort well, of place. <laughs> well, there's nothing else to do in Southampton apart yeah. from lick stuff. Yeah. So, so you were saying you feel a bit nervous about this. So is it? I would have thought you'd be feeling more drunk with power. Like I, I could be the one to bring down this multi-million pound operation. You know, that could be me. Surely you, you, you sort of want to give it a go. Yeah, I feel like actually, when you put it like that, maybe this is wasted on me. Maybe you know, people have been trying to bring down the ECB for years, and here I am, kind of <laughs> with the with the nuclear codes, as it were. But um, no, it's um, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fascinating, really. I think we've, we're all kind of having got to this point, we're all comprehending just what it will look like and how different it's going to be on the field. Yeah, and I guess that's the the the, the, the bit that we have really no clue about, do we? I mean, it's all good in theory to talk about no crowds and we can draw the comparisons to the UAE and we know that there wasn't saliva used in the ball during the practice matches, so there's some test case there. But a test match in these circumstances, it could end up being the blueprint for international cricket as we know it for the next, I don't know, 12, 18 months. It's, it's, the whole world will be watching. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. I've I've, uh, I've written a piece today, Tuesday, um, the day before the test, about saliva, but specific, but specifically about how, you know, this 
as you say, 12 or 18 month period, I didn't, didn't actually even consider it would be that long, but I suppose it would have to be, really, wouldn't it? But yeah, yeah, I mean, if there's no, I mean, if we don't get a vaccine, I mean, if there are um, flare ups around the cricketing world, I mean, this might just be the way it has to be. Yeah, so, um, you know, c- cricket fans are, are big defenders of the record books, and the idea that this is going to happen maybe when the ball won't swing as much because players won't use saliva is going to... I don't know, some people are going to do better than most in, in this kind of situation, especially especially in England. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's quite an intriguing time. I'm, I'm, I don't really... I was trying to think, actually, about what kind of trends we might we might suddenly see. And I'm, I'd be really interested to see the statistics at the end of this particular series. Um, granted, it's a, it's a small sample size, but, you know, see how much swing Anderson can get when he can't shine the ball. But also just, uh, are there particular bats? For, uh, you know, swing bowling is hard to face raw batsmen, but I wonder if we're going to see certain batsmen come to the fore. Maybe particularly openers who last beyond 10 overs, because ten, that tends to be when conventional swing is, is more pronounced where we see kind of bigger bigger opening stands bigger scores from the top three um, yeah I'm, I'm kind of curious this is a really really interesting test case we've got here and will we see players starting to get picked just because they have really gelatinous sweat you know if you're just a good sweater like with really <laughs> thick heavy weird sweat that has an effect on the ball does that get you in as a, as a kind of specialist you know like one of those football players who's just really good at the long throw and so they keep getting picked for that yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the um, like I was uh, talking to Darren Goff about this, and he is a fascinating character. Anyway, I think he'd be you know great for this particular podcast. He lo- just loves the sound of his own voice, but he's he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's very insightful. But he um, he was talking about when he he never used to be a big fan of saliva because he thought it was like licking the ball. You know, he's ahead of his time, Goff. But he um, so he 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 would always kind of you sweat and on a tour of um, I think it was an A tour of uh, of Asia he thought well you know where's my mankiest sweat and he realised it was from his lower back so he used to shine the ball on his lower back Mm. because he believed the sweat was heavier yeah um, and that would therefore impart kind of different characteristics on the ball. So we're going to see loads of kind of... I mean, imagine passing that around. Uh, um, also, I mean, the, the promotional song is right there, Back Sweats Back, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Think about, like, how unhealthy we were as human beings before this all kicked off. I mean, like, the, the hygiene of that, Darren Goff's back sweat was, like, passed from teammate to teammate. Uh. And the fact that they're still all here with us in 2020, it seems a minor miracle. <laughs> Yeah, at different times, wasn't it? Yeah, when men were men and sweat was sweat. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't understand the way it was back then. Um, A a change that I wanted to ask you about, Joe Root's missing because he's got uh, another kid coming and so he's going to be at the birth. Ben Stokes is the fill-in captain. It strikes me that Stokes would only be made captain in this sort of scenario where it's a kind of token thing where it's not going to be a continuation in the role but it's like you can do it for one game and then you get to tick that box that says you've been England captain you know he seems to me like you know 2017 he's punching a guy out in the street and he's stripped of the vice captaincy and he's he's never going to be near it then he is really good at cricket for a while and so then he gets forgiven um on that basis and so then they say well now he's an inspiring leader and uh, people want to see him captain the side but he he's not He's not a long-term captaincy option, is he? He's not a successor. He's a he's he's a fill-in because he's a current star in the team, and it would be a bit rude not to give it to him because he's very good sort of player. 
Yeah, when you said in this circumstance, I thought you meant like as the world crumbles around us, <laughs> he's the kind of leader you want. In the same way that like you wouldn't really want Joe Root as the star of Mad Max, mm. <laughs> you'd want Ben Stokes, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think um, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, having... <laughs> living my life online and seeing uh, I think Peter Lawler wrote a piece about how Ben Stokes getting the captaincy should be a sign or at least should be a nod to Cricket Australia that David Warner is you know uh, mm. should be considered for leadership despite what happened in, in Cape Town and I and I agree with that and I'd actually say David Warner is probably a better fit for captain than, than Ben Stokes I think the the funny thing with Stokes is Stokes has never been a captain and he's never been a captain because he's Throughout the age groups, he's played above his above his years. So therefore, mm. he's often been the youngest in a team, and still been one of the better players, but been the youngest, and therefore was never given captaincy. So it's never something he's particularly sought after. He's never really tasted it. He did, he did it three times for Durham Academy um, in two thousand eight, I think it was. Mm. And I think Engl- England are actually quite reticent to give him the captaincy because of what they've had at the previous kind of enigmatic all-rounders in Andrew Flintoff and Ian Botham before him even though I, I would say that Stokes is, has a much more refined and nuanced cricketing brain than either, either of those two and those two were incredible players in their own right um, so I think we're also obviously we're quite a conservative nation anyway so the idea of giving someone too much responsibility is something we worry before we give them any responsibility the difference with Stokes is that he already has quite a lot of responsibility now because as you say he's had that period of being good at cricket um, which really is it is the ultimate um, you know I, they shouldn't give people community service they should give them the new ball shouldn't they yeah <laughs> you could really re- reform characters like that if, you, if um, you can do something with this if you can take three for twenty in the first session well all, all is, is forgiven so it is funny isn't it like you can become a member a playing member of the MCC by averaging over 40 and you can kind of overcome any kind of conviction by doing the same <laughs> <laughs> I suppose with Stokes the, the thing that, that sets him a little bit apart as far as the, the uh, as being captain is is that they all and this is something you'd have a, a sense of talking to the players quite often is they all feel as though he plays that role on the field to an extent already although he might not be like directing the troops as to where they feel per se but the 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 role he plays in the dressing room is as its sort of notional leader anyway because Root doesn't have that kind of Personality. He doesn't have that lead from the front thing going on, which Stokes clearly does. Yeah, yeah. The, oh, Stokes is the um, Stokes is the perfect. Uh, you know, um, he's the perfect right hand man to to Joe Root, and I think because they've had that relationship for so long, and I don't even mean just in the England squad, just kind of through the age groups. I think they they really feed off each other really nicely. That's not to say Joe Root isn't the type of person who can or who will have a go at a player for, for not pulling his way, but Ben Stokes is able to do it in a different way he's, where he's able to show them up in a, in a more real sense by his actions. So, yeah, he, they've, they've almost... Uh, England are in a situation now where they absolutely need someone like Joss Butler or Rory Burns to spend the next years just scoring bucket loads of runs so at least they have someone else to throw into the argument of who's going to take over after Joe Root because you know we know we all know how these cycles work if England go and get pumped in Australia 
for the next Ashes, Joe Root will step down because that, that, those are the rules. Well, also because he's, he'll probably be tired, you know. He's, he's had to come to Australia <laughs> yeah. and lose quite a lot. It's, it's quite t- it's yeah. exhausting. Well, yeah, exactly. So in that, in that sense, I, I, could, I could definitely see in, in the kind of era of stop gaps, seemingly, you know, um, mm. I know Tim Payne's a bit more than that, but obviously Tim Payne got the captaincy because there wasn't really anyone there to pick up the slap, a slap. And we could be in a situation where Stokes is told, that, you know what, I know this is something extra to heap on your buckaroo of a personality, but mm. here is the captaincy. Can you at least hold it for 18 months? Can you just carry yeah. us through a winter and and see where we're at after that? It it could be part of the sentence, you know. The the court finds you guilty. We sentence you to uh, two match winning performances of inspirational fashion in the home summer and one winter tour to Australia, which won't be much fun. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we should we should clarify. He, he was found not guilty. But well, yeah, yeah I, I'm yeah, I'm so. just thinking about a scenario in which that's those are the rules you know you, you have to go and you, you can't be forgiven for going and being ordinary you've, you've, you can only be forgiven for going and being really good so you know I, I, I sentence you to a, a breathtaking hundred to clinch a test match in front of a riotous home crowd I should clarify that Jeff's going to have to write the end of almost every other paragraph in his book. And by the way, he was found not guilty. And by the way, he was found not guilty <laughs> in order to caveat the inevitable <laughs> paragraph after paragraph about the Stokes and st- embargo. Um, uh, the on-field stuff, uh, Vish, the West Indies are, are coming here under strength because of the coronavirus implications. So uh, they haven't brought their entire squad with them. Uh, they uh, had a poor performance in their second intra-club, which sounds um, sounds like it doesn't make sense. How can you have a poor intra-club? But the idea that their, their top order f- faced their best bowlers, that's the way they set it up in the second game, and at one stage they were like 40 for 5 or something like that, um, that reinforces that the batting is quite weak. Um, up against an England bowling attack where, at the moment, I mean, who knows who they're going to leave out of the, the final 11, but it's fairly strong. I mean, Anderson and Broad in English conditions, and you add to that Wood and Archer, and, I mean, Wood bowled the house down last week, and we know what Archer did last year. So it, this, this still could be a mismatch. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say kind of England are pretty comfortable favourites, really, because of what you've just outlined there. Uh, the, it, it, because the weather hasn't been that great recently and also because the no cricket has been played at all in the UK the outfield's going to be lush and the pitch itself is going to be quite slow so you know we, we could be in a situation where, where it could actually be generally a lot of hard graft but the, the other thing is it's going to be quite spicy as well I think there's a little bit of weather around so it's going to be overcast and you, you would just fancy England in, in those conditions. I know we're going to talk about West Indies attack, but beyond Kimar Roach, I don't think they they can match England for suitability in English conditions, which is which is totally fine, obviously. But you know, in a situation where you're going to have you have where we've basically got three back to back tests, um, once confidence goes from a batsman, it's going to be pretty hard to to get back. You always think you know when even with the luxury of a a three test series in normal circumstances there's enough time maybe even like a, a a tour game or at least two days worth of hits out in the middle to to kind of get yourself back into some kind of groove and obviously in a five day test you've got um, a tour game often sandwiched in the middle of them but it, it's just going to going to be wham bang bang thank you ma'am isn't it so yeah I, I kind of I, I do fear for West Indies a little bit but simi- similarly you know it, it's just because England won away in, in South Africa doesn't mean they're kind of all, the, all their ills are suddenly solved 
Will the West Indies, do you think, go in with four fast bowlers themselves or will the back-to-back nature mean that they'd be better off holding one in reserve, I guess, so that they can you know, stagger the, the, the workload for their players as well? Because you, you've got Rakeem Cornwall, the off-spinner, who's, you know, I, I know you want to see him play, um, but there's some conjecture about whether he will. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose... It, <laughs> I wonder if if the if the first test is where they just play their quicks and they think right, fuck it, we're gonna let's just see what this is like mm. for starters. Let's not try and kind of give up by ourselves any insurance with a holding bowler. Let's just let's just see what we can do because we're both they're both two teams who are coming into this extremely cold. I don't think either of these groups of players have ever come into a test series like this before, where you know we we can ham up the intra squad matches, but. I don't know if you saw clips of the second one between the West Indies side. It was one thing that they weren't wearing whites, which I didn't have a problem with. But God, it was it was just dire. And <laughs> I, you know, I, I couldn't. I, I think it's in their best interest to just go hard for this first test. To play, you know, to Gabriel Roach holder, and if you can fit the if, and if you can fit the other holder in, why not? Yeah, but, yeah. It'd be interesting to see kind of how they go. I, I kind of I am, you know. They've, they've got to set their sword out early, I think. How many articles are we going to see written that just say Rakeem Cornwall's very big? Because I read one today, I think, which was just that. It was like, he's a large human being. And you think that's fairly self-evident if you watch the match, that you can tell that. Um, but there didn't seem to be any point to this piece aside from big, big man, Rakeem the Dream. <laughs> large adult son, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> well... I mean, that's the thing. I, I, I would it's pretty like tedious. To think that, <laughs> I, I, I would actually like to think that um, we're all quite you know, socially aware now more, more so than ever. And, I, I, you know, I think we're used to seeing blokes who are a bit overweight. And I actually think the majority of the articles, or rather the majority of the reaction on Twitter has been kind of very much what you said oh we're going to see so many articles about Rakeem Walmore being fat I bet we see loads of articles about him being fat but really kind of I, you know what Tim Wigmore in the Telegraph did um, you know interviewed him and, and that was quite good there was a lot of I think people have already started doing the reactionary pieces to the action which hasn't actually quite happened yet <laughs> so they were actually like oh but actually you know he, he's, his um, first class average is in the in the 20s and he, he had mm. a brilliant start to his test career so inadvertently we've kind of we've jumped ahead of that Right, um, which kind of seems endemic of any kind of conversation you oh, have God. nowadays. But uh, so it's for Cornwall's benefit. I think we've seen beyond that. But what I, I do think we, we are, you know, maybe to his detriment is th- these aren't ideal conditions for a spin bowler. Certainly, someone who kind of likes to get into a groove. So I, I would go as far as to say that if we see him, if we see a decent amount of him this uh, this series, it's probably because things aren't going too well because he's going to have to hold up an end rather than run through sides. Australian listeners, Vish, who may not have uh, followed the, the English winter tourist Africa too closely, might be surprised to see that Jack Leach has been jettisoned in favour of Don Best, his Somerset teammate. I mean, Best did a great job holding up an end, obviously, and not just holding up an end, but took a bag of five wickets, I think, in PE, wasn't it, when he got recalled to the test side from kind of nowhere uh, in that series. But if you can uh, detail... Uh, the Jack Leach story since, uh, you know, I guess that, that famous day at Headingley with Ben Stokes and, of course, he plays the last couple of Ashes test matches and does serviceably at the Oval. But, um, you know, since then, uh, it, it's been a wild ride for him for mostly reasons to do with his health. 
Yeah, yeah. So he toured New Zealand in November of last year and, and picked up an illness. And it was only when he subsequently toured South Africa that they realised it was sepsis. Um, and there was an illness coursing through the England team on that South Africa tour. Um, an illness that kind of shared a few symptoms with, with coronavirus, actually, to the extent that quite a few players at the start of this summer were wondering if they if they'd had it out in, in South Africa. Um, now, it seems that that was more gastric anyway, but Leach, with his Crohn's disease, is particularly susceptible to, um, you know, just with a weakened immune system, is susceptible to all kinds of illnesses. And so they were actually... He, he left bef- South Africa before the um, start of the final test. And I, I, was, I spoke to him, actually, because he was there and he was kind of fit and healthy, but he'd lost so much energy over the course of that... Um, Series that they're like, right, you need to go home. And they would have sent him home earlier, but he was just wasn't actually fit to travel. Um, and so in terms of kind of coming, you know, best getting the nod ahead of him, much of that is to do with basically, I suppose, similar reasons to what we were talking about regarding Cornwall. He is um, a, a better batsman and he's kind of, he's not someone who, who takes wickets as regularly as Leach, even though his record at Taunton is, is, is exceptional, but best is, best can hold up an end. And he's shown over the course of, the tour in South Africa and and then the Lions tour in Australia actually um, that he's he's kind of come on leaps and bounds yeah. more moreover because of his confidence rather than his actual ability he's got a bit more self belief and I think with Leach it's 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 no real slight on him but it, it's it's you know it's that well worn story of um, you know you can be a better player when you're out of team and sometimes you can be a worse player because the person taking your place is doing a better job yeah I, I talked to Bess's coach when he got recalled to the side so down in Taunton and uh, his attitude was well it's in all likelihood Bess won't even be playing for Somerset at the start of the season obviously had the season played out as we expected would have been you know beginning in April and, and uh, tracks that only warrant having one spinner in the 11 but yeah it's kind of a remarkable story really because he went on that spin camp uh, last year with uh, Richard Dawson was it and Orangana Harath of course yeah and and from there that seemed to be enough to to show faith in him to go to South Africa and as you say a much improved bowler but yeah in in some respects it might mean that is the the door shut for Leach and I I hate to think that would be the case but in the subcontinent illness tends to follow teams when they go to the subcontinent and um, you know it it could be that it won't take much as I guess what I'm trying to say here for Leach to find it very hard to get back into this team yeah yeah I I, I think (laughs) I think we may, but maybe over-egging the pudding a bit on on Leach's illness. You know, he, he is he, he's he's fit and healthy. He just has to take more precautions than, than certain other people. I think with Bess as well. This is going to sound really English, but his, <laughs> you know, but like how he's been around the group and you know the the things the the seemingly inconsequential things about like politeness and behaviour and attitude. Um, it really kind of is does come to the fore with with best not least because of what you outlined there at the start of your question when you were talking about you know speaking to jason curran about how he wouldn't start for somerset this in this um 2020 season because if the season had played out as normal yeah best wouldn't have got many games leach would have been given the nod and best wouldn't be in the position he is in now where he's in the first test squad so it is interesting um that his particular situation and even to the extent that the strong rumours that Bess is going to join Warwickshire, who do need a spinner when Jeetan Patel is yeah. walking off into the sunset. So, yeah, he. Um, 
I, th- I think it's Leech and Bess have a, a really interesting relationship because they're really good mates as well and I think they they tend to push each other and the reason Bess got his England debut back in the start of 2018 you might remember, yeah, remember that yeah. press conference it was very um, very insightful he was talking about how he got the call when he was looking to buy a couch but the reason he, he was got in Ikea that, wasn't he with his yeah. girlfriend yeah. <laughs> and the reason he got that call was because Leach got injured and the first call he got when he got called up was from Leach um, who wished him well and kind of hoped he did well and Bess relayed that and said that he felt a bit sad that joy for him meant um, you know, anguish for, for someone close to him. Mm. So you're saying that Bess is polite, thus indicating that the famously rude and abrasive Jack Leach, who, who we saw through the yeah. ashes, just <laughs> swearing at people, throwing bats on the ground and all the rest of it, just, just can't be tolerated in the team room. Yeah, I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can trust someone who wears glasses. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> can't trust you. Just can't <laughs> trust you. This the other, uh, I guess, selection point. Noting, of course, that, that Ed Smith has, and James Taylor have been very loyal. They're, they're dancing with the one that brung them in South Africa with nine of the eleven, um, you know, in this squad. But or nine of the eleven um, successful players in the final test likely to play here. Uh, but um, Joe Denley, uh, Zach Crawley. And Joe Root, because uh, of course Root's out of the eleven, um, are probably playing for two spots in the second Test match. Now Root will come back in, of course, which means that it becomes a shootout between the two Kent batsmen, uh, Denley, who I think a lot of us admire greatly for the uh, for the, the way in which he's been able to occupy the crease for a long period of time, and the dividends um, have been reaped by others. I mean, you wrote about the dentry, and, and really the, the lovely thing about the dentry, and if we are to be indulgent, is that the dentry, Jeff, of course, comes from the cow and tan, and Vish cited that handsomely at the top of the piece. When, uh, and of course the dentry meaning uh, Joe Denley facing 100 balls his mm-hmm. um, equivalent of the cow and ton uh, but he's done that routinely but not gone on with it so his test average is only 30 and I guess that's the number that um, he'll be whacked over the head with if he doesn't go on and finally break through for his actual first proper test century um, this week but yeah I think he, his his position in the last 12 months has to an extent been underrated but I mean the door is going to close on him isn't it unless he makes runs because they're going to want to go with Crawley longer term yeah absolutely and, and there was almost an argument to go with uh, Dan Lawrence of Essex as well yeah, instead yeah. of him Dan Lawrence is somebody who has you know back three for Essex has been given a lot of responsibility and um, did really exceptionally well on the on the line sort of Australia yep. scored an average over 100 um, yeah it's an interesting time for for Denley because this period you know some could see it as a stay of execution but the kind of feeling from from the England side seems to be that actually why don't we try and do things a bit differently here um, and one of those things would be to you know start this first test with Austria abroad because of the back-to-back nature of it and the other one was to maybe just push a few youngsters through now it worked with Ollie Pope and Zach Rawley came in uh, when Rory Burns got injured during South Africa and and and, and did really well certainly looked the part he's one of those young batsmen you see a bit like Renshaw actually he seems to just have an extra second over his peers and hits the ball kind of seemingly wherever he wants to um, so yeah the, the, he, he's Denley if you're going to pick kind of the worst person to rival Denley it's not just a young kid. It's a young kid in Crawley who who looks the part. You know, I think I think Denley would rather go up against a 27 year old who'd scored, you know, five thousand runs in the last three seasons than this guy who has so much potential. Yeah. He's only got th- so Crawley's only got three first class hundreds. He had four because he scored a hundred in his tour game in the lead up to the Sri Lanka series, which England returned home from because of coronavirus. But that got downgraded from a first class game yesterday because of illegal use of a substitute fielder. Oh what? Yeah. So Ben Stokes 
Ben Stokes and Matt Parkinson <laughs> switched positions. I don't, know, I can't remember who came on for who, but because of that, you know, there are a lot of important things going in, in going on in the world, and this is one of them. So wow. because the game got downgraded from a first class game, so <laughs> Crawley's had a a quarter of his first class hundreds. What out. <laughs> so. You know, we're kind of Crawley is someone who is being picked on on potential, being picked on on how he looks, and and so far kind of justifying the selection on on those terms. And once he gets a score of no, I think that's kind of curtains for for Joe Denley, which is a shame, as you say, because he has done the job that is asked of him. It's easy to kind of laugh at the thirty of a hundred balls, which is you know what he'll be best remembered for, um, but he's he is the reason that so many other people before and after him have been able to be successful that uh, you know Adam and I maintain that um, Ben Stokes at Headingley doesn't happen if, if Joe Denley doesn't bat the way he does the night before and ensures that Stokes doesn't come in with as much um, with as much juice in the ball as much juice in the bowler so he can get set so um, and certainly Joe Root doesn't last overnight to do that with him with Stokes even for that little bit in the morning the next day so yeah he, he's definitely played his part um, I, I do hope he gets that monkey of his back and does get that test 100 because I think it's the you know is it a bit of a naff phrase I mean, saying someone deserves 100 but I think uh, career wise he certainly does will you run on I, I know when Peter Siddle took his 200th test wicket I threatened <laughs> to run on the ground at Adelaide Oval and, 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 and bottled it um, given there'll be no one at uh, the Rose Bowl. I mean, I know it might result in you getting um, arrested for coronavirus reasons, but I think y- you should run on. As the man who, who wrote of the dentry and, and one of the famous Denley guys, I think you, you have to run on the ground. I mean, what a way to go. Denley to score his 100. We run on the ground, bring the operation to its knees, yeah. and, and test cricket no more. The, I'd be like, the, the test gets cancelled, and then it gets downgraded from test status because it was called yeah. on <laughs> in the centuries. Yeah. Like so he loses it, yeah. It'd be a bit like when Larry David tripped up Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would be on my contract. I'd have to live with that forever. Uh, I, you might not live with it for very long if Joe Denley can hold of you afterwards. So, look, it, it looks like your gut instinct is that um, West Indies will struggle because their batting's pretty fragile. Shimmer and Hetmeyer hasn't come, who's one of their most commanding batsmen. But they smashed up England in the Caribbean last year. Um, you know, really dominated them at, at times. Jason Holder making that double hundred and um, bowling them out for 77 or, or whatever it was. So th- there's there's enough in this West Indies team if they if they get it right to, to be able to rock England. And, and England are a pretty frail batting lineup themselves. So it, it seems like it's all up in the air, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does to an extent. The the only thing is home conditions, isn't it? I think England misread the conditions in the West Indies quite dramatically because they went there the year before and it was kind of very spin-heavy. Raheem Cornwall, actually, and, and Jamal Warrican tore them apart. And then they kind of go to the West Indies and it's quick pitches and Shannon Gabriel and Kimar Roach do a number of them, a number of them as does Jason Holder. And with all due respect to the bloke, Roston Chase, you know, those eight wickets in the first, in the first test, I still... Oh, God, that. I forgot about that. It's yeah. an effort, isn't he? Absur- absurd, yeah. But, um, yeah, like, it is... It, Roston Chase really air. sounds like an English town, you know, like a, a wealthy enclave, yeah. a gated community where, you know, they don't let the commoners in. Oh, oh but at Roston Chase, we do things differently. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ben Stokes couldn't be captain of Roston. No, absolutely not. And the Windies batting, though, as, as, as Jeff was kind of touching on before, I mean, you know, uh, Shy Hope made twin tons the last time the Windies were here, but hasn't made another century uh, in Test cricket. Uh, I mean, uh, Jermaine Blackwood uh, is a bit of an England specialist. I think they said this on the Wisdom podcast the other day when you look at his numbers um, against England but, uh, uh, compared to other nations. But I'll tell you what, he is a chancer if ever I've seen one. He's been stealing a living for years. Um, <laughs> And then, I mean, you, 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 a lot has to be, a lot of faith needs to be shown well, by Jason Holder in batting himself in the top six if you do want to include Cornwall. I mean, it does feel a bit too, too bits and pieces y for me. I mean, especially when, as you say, you're missing Hetmeyer, you're missing Darren Bravo, two of the more established players in the side. So, and yeah, home conditions. The whole thing feels like it could, we, I mean, I, I don't want this to be this way. I, I, I think that it's important that it's a contest. I think it's important that, that they, they play their best cricket here, but I'm, I am worried about three day test matches as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the eternal freelancer's woe, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone, someone who I think, uh, or who I certainly who I'd hope, would ha- will have a good series, and he, he certainly kind of had an upturn in form recently. Shane Darich, the oh yeah, uh, he's um he's been averaging kind of above forty five, I think, in the last eighteen months. I- I've probably got that totally wrong, sorry, but he's he's certainly been an upturn, an upturn in his batting when before he looked like a, a bit of a bunny, really. Um, and so he's someone who you know we you often see this when when teams run through a side, there's always someone who offers resistance, and it's usually a six or seven, and it's usually a keeper, and often for England it was usually Brad Haddon. So, yeah, I can definitely see. Well, certainly he's someone who outright needs to have a good series um, because yeah, it looks like they're carrying a few passengers up top. John Campbell, I don't know if you remember him. Yeah, he made the soup. Out- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but he um, is a left-handed batsman, a left-handed opener who plays some absurd shots in a in a really wonderful and um, unique way. Um, he. <laughs> He uh, he's probably most not most famous for this, but certainly one of the moments I enjoyed was when he um, I think it was the fourth over of an innings tried to ramp Stuart Broad over his shoulder. Um, Stuart Broad around the wicket to left-handers, which is <laughs> a tactic that served him really well. And this bloke thought, no, I'm just going to ramp you over. Well, man, you've got to learn from what other people have failed at. Look, what what did they want to not do in the Ashes? Never ramped him. Didn't try it. <laughs> yeah. got, got out seven just- times. He's inspired by Ryan Campbell, one Campbell to another. Exactly. Who, of course, Ryan Campbell is the man who initiated the rap all those years ago. Uh, Vish, before we let you go, uh, Black Lives Matter has been a big uh, emphasis on the lead-up to this test match, both from uh, the West Indies skipper Jason Holder, who spoke powerfully last week when they announced they were going to wear the um, insignia on the collar, but England are following suit. And they made a big point of this. They put a statement out saying they were they, they wanted to distinguish between um, what their statement meant and uh, I guess they were trying to cut off at the pass any accusations that they were engaging in some sort of broader political protest activity to do with uh, other elements of BLM in the UK. I mean, it was a careful line they trod, but they wanted to make sure that they were in solidarity with the, the with the West Indies players. Yeah, yeah, they're um, they're they're quite they're a good bunch. This England side. And I know that sounds a bit of a cliche for a journalist to talk of, you know, the team they cover as being a good bunch, but there's certainly an good bunch of lads. There. Yeah, great bunch of lads. Yeah, they'll yeah, get around them. Yeah. yeah. Terrific fellas, but they, um, you know, they're, they're very socially conscious individuals, and I, th- I think that's in part because of not not necessarily because of their upbringing, but kind of because where they are now, because they, you know, share dressing room regularly with with two Muslim players. They understand now a bit more that their 
jobs as, as sportsmen as, and importantly recognisable sportsmen can be used for good and I think they see they th- see things with Joffre Archer in particular over the last couple of years in terms of like the racist abuse that he's received not just over social media in person but they see that that kind of stuff is real that you know there are people out there who for some reason that will always be peculiar to me see it fit to denigrate someone on their either their social standing or their their background and I think with the Black Lives Matter movement in particular with England adopting it it was driven by the players um, and driven by an awareness that what go, what is going on, on around them is real and that while they can use their sporting bubble quite literally a bubble now to to insulate themselves from it that it would be actually kind of a, almost a dereliction of duty to do so I, th- I think the other thing that's important in this is that you know the, the ECB are, are trying to change as well cricket in England is trying to change and you'll get resistance from the usual gibberers to <laughs> borrow Adam's phrase but I, I think what is important is that the noise being made against kind of this kind of progression is, is not just being annoyed but ridiculed and, and importantly kind of addressed head on in, in quite a quite a forceful manner I think I, I, you know I, I, we kind of we've gone through so many cycles of this haven't we where we thought the best way was to ignore it the best way was to educate people but I think kind of you can educate people by calling them out and you can educate people by reprimanding them and I think by being so proactive in, in little things like having you know the emblem on their shirt and by you know, st- taking the knee in solidarity with the West Indies as they'll do tomorrow. It goes some way. To oh, they will do that. That'll be part yeah, of tomorrow's yeah. pre-game. That, that's that's certainly what I've heard. Yeah, okay. um, but by doing that, they will be making a statement that is not just going to reverberate around English cricket, but the rest of the world as well, and, and beyond cricket itself, which is, I suppose, across the board, uh, a sport that has a lot of soul searching to do on on these matters as well. Fantastic, Vish. Well, uh, you've got another podcast to go to, which is the custom in, 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 in your life. At the moment. You've got a football podcast to record down the road in Islington, so I'll let you go and do that. But um, best of luck in the bubble in Southampton. Be sure to let us know uh, how it goes uh, when you're finished. We'll get you back on to talk all about the experience. And thanks, as always, for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us. A pleasure, as ever. This is Jeremy Coney, born 21, 6, 19. <laughs> so I'm a little older than you thought. And I'm on the final word. And who better to say the final word? Jeremy. This is the final word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, thanks again to Vish, who I reckon he might be, apart from Norcross, I reckon mm. Vish has been on this show more than anybody else over the last five and a half years. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I think that's probably accurate. Um, Maybe know, Easy I, Westbury might have come on as many times as Vish, but it, 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 they're all on the podium, put it that way. Yeah, and I mean, pound for pound, he could take any of them. Like, he, you know, he's, he's, <laughs> he's compact, but he's powerful, you know, so... <laughs> if it, like, if, if they got in the ring, I'd be backing Vish. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't be backing Norcross, put it that no. way. Uh, right, <laughs> Jeff. He'd, he'd just breathe out so much cigarette smoke that it would incapacitate his <laughs> opponent. That, that would be the, the special move. 
All right, Jeff, with all of our serious stuff out of the way for another week, it must be time for... Nerd Pledge! The game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page where they support the show <laughs> by sending us the number of dollars and cents that correlate to a cricketing number and we have to work out what it is. As we sometimes do, we'll start the Nerd Pledge segment with Julio Pledge, uh, the Julios who say, I'm not going to send a nerd number, I'm just going to send <laughs> an ordinary amount of currency because I don't have time for this. I'm too cool. Uh, We like to try to think about who this person might be and what they get up to. Uh, Philip Lewis, I am getting the feeling that Philip Lewis once um, adjusted a lawnmower so it could run on recycled vegetable oil, um, would go down to the local chip shop, get the leftover fat, run it through a filter and, and then get the, the old Victor to, to run, thus saving dozens of dollars over the course of the decade. One Well done, Philip. I, I was watching Back to the Future 2 the other night and that, that reminds me of uh, how, how Doc Brown managed to fuel the flux capacitor um, uh, when he went to the year 2015 and came back and had the DeLorean there and he was simply picking up stuff out of the trash and pouring it into the, the, the fusion <laughs> machine that he created in between times. Well, it's funny that you mention that because another of our Julio pledges is Dorothy Brown, uh, a.k.a. Dot Brown, <laughs> who was the initial inspiration for the character in the film, but the studio execs got involved and wanted to, to change that character to a, a doctor and, and thus Dot Brown became Doc Brown in Back to the future so thank you Dorothy and uh, the, last, the last of our Julio's Jordan Harris. Jordan Harris put on a, a, a one person production of King Lear in, in year 10 at high school played all of the roles himself uh, which led to the, the interesting scene of him having to, to claw out his own eyes um, before he went wandering off madly into the darkness. It was considered a tour de force so well done Jordan Jordan Harris uh, supporting the show as well those are the Julio's this week Yes, thank you to Philip, Jordan and Dorothy. Thank you for being a friend. Uh, Jeff, into our new numbers, 591, it's Michael Ball. And the hint is that he's from Bury near Manchester. Yes, 591 from Michael Ball could only be the England cap number of Andrew Fredward Flintoff, who was born in Preston just down the road, a a proud Lancashire lad. There couldn't be anything else, could it, Adam? Uh, all I know about Preston, other than the fact that I've uh, been there a couple of times for football games, is that uh, it, it has the, and it may not be the case anymore, but according to the Guinness Book of Records, it had the biggest bus shelter in the world. Mm. Wow. Which isn't the sort of thing you would associate with a, a random northern town, but but there you go. But I think you, you must be right, given the, the geographical clue from Michael Ball at 591. must be Freddie Flintoff's cap number. I'll happy to go with that. I like big bus and I cannot lie. That's, that's their song in Preston. <laughs> they, they love that song. The next number on the list, Adam. Uh, it's a double. It's a double up. Elliot Diamond. Uh, no relation to Lou Diamond Phillips, I don't think, but I hope so. Elliot Diamond and Scott Tutton have come in with two dollars fifty, two fifty. What does that say to you? Well, Jeff, there there, there were three two hundred and fifties made in Test cricket. I think you and I were. Well, I know that you and I were both there for one of them, Justin Langer's in two thousand and two, who we've already talked about on the show today. Yes, and we didn't know each other then. We were we were adrift in the great uh, sea of the MCG, and not knowing what our futures would bring. I uh, was thinking about, uh, well, 
not so much thinking about, but watching highlights from that day uh, recently. So on the William McInnes episode, he talks about watching a YouTube video over and over again of Matthew Hayden um, bullying bowlers around. I can't remember how he described it, but it was sufficiently grabby that I was able to remember it at the time and put it into Google. And yeah, that, that's Matthew Hayden bludgeoning sixes on that day at the MCG. It's quite remarkable to watch and think that just how dominant uh, he was at the peak of his powers. But up the other end, of course, Langer, who I think brought up his 200 50 with a six as well. So Hayden went to a century with a six. And I reckon Langer either moved to 200 or 251 or the other uh, with a big one as well uh, into the uh, southern stand where the Barmy Army was sitting in that test match. So could very well be uh, Justin Langer. Let's give that to Elliot Diamond. As for Scott Tutton, well, Dougie Walters, of course, made 250 as well. Jeff, his highest test score made against New Zealand in 1977. So it, it could be that. It could be that. Um, one that I put together that I liked, the uh, the quote that you're thinking of was, uh, this is Flintoff and that is Hayden, as, as he marmalises <laughs> him down the ground. Um, I, I, won't, I won't try to impersonate William McGuinness's impersonation of Richie Benno. That would be getting too meta. But uh, a, a number that I put together is if you combine the across formats of international matches, there's a lovely trio who all played 250 international matches Michael Bevan, made in heaven. Uh, Jeff Dujon, the West Indies wicketkeeper of the great teams. Peter Jeffrey Leroy Dujon, one of the great names of cricket as well. And Julan Goswami, uh, India's great fast bowler. The, the only ones to play 250 international matches. I think Mitali Raj has played more, but I reckon Goswami's would be the second most matches still. Elise Perry's getting close. I think she's on about 240, but... Um, Julian still got that gig. So that three, I, I like the idea of that trio being together. Goswami, Dujon, Bevan. I don't know what they're doing. Maybe getting a milkshake, you know, maybe maybe just down the beach. It's classic dream dinner party areas, isn't it? You know, three people dream dinner party. Well, of course, Winston Churchill, as everyone always says over here, for a dream dinner party. Or, uh, but no, I'll have I'll have Michael Bevan, Jeff Dujon, and Julian Goswami, please. I, I just think that, like, maybe not dinner party, but maybe they're doing something practical. You know, maybe they're fixing the guttering on a house. You know, there's some chuckles, some good times. You know, Bevo's up the step ladder. Julian's passing up the tools. You know, I just I just think. There's something nice about that. It'd be a, be a laid-back trio. So, so that's my my very unlikely bet for 250 for Scott Dutton <laughs> is that it's the combined international matches of Bevan, Dujon and Goswami. Um, Wouldn't it be great if it was that? Like when you just somehow both landed on that statistical anomaly. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you to Scott. Thank you to Elliot. Next on our list is a Jordan Rousseau. And, and here's one I liked very much when I saw it uh, come through. Somehow he's figured out how to get around the, the patron protocols and managed to send through 0.68, as in 68 cents. But what does 0.68 mean? Adam, it has to mean, surely, rounded up, the Bannerman percentage. Charles Bannerman, who still holds the record for the most percentage of a team's runs in a completed innings set in the very first test match with 67.34%. Now, if you just round that up a tad... Six Jeffrey, you can't be rounding up sixty-seven point three four to. You have to when it's in a when it's you in currency. Be. When it's in currency, but why wouldn't? 
Why wouldn't it be 67? Sure, surely it's 60. I mean, it, it, look, it's a very generous interpretation of are how you're saying it shouldn't be 67. Are you saying it should be 67? should be 67, of course. Yeah, if it's, if but that, that would be the number, surely. But uh, he, he's not going to. I don't expect that Jordan would be putting in a number okay. like that and working on the basis that we'd be rounding up in a way that's not conventional. Now, he would have gone 67 if it's a wow. matter of a cent. I mean, I, I, I've got to believe that's the case. I mean, there is another 68, okay. and, and we talked about it the other week. I mean, you know, I keep saying that there's, there's certain test matches that are somehow just drawn to the final word uh, nerd pledge segment time and time again. One of those is at the Oval in 1986 when Australia were all out for 68, uh, an innings I talked about a couple of weeks ago where George Lohman took seven for 36 in 30.2 overs and Australia survived into the 61st over for just 68 runs. So that that that, that is a, a noteworthy 68 cause of course, okay. Grace... Um, made 170 uh, in the first innings for England before their bowlers ran a mark. So that could be 68. I, I, I acknowledge um, that it would be savvy if he, if that were the percentage for Bannerman, but I just can't see it. Surely that would have been 67. Well, I, I will be talking a bit more about very low scores by test teams today, so I'm, I'm prepared to give it to you in for consistency. Um, but, you know, Jordan, let us know who's right, who's wrong. Any, any time we can get close to Bannerman, I want to be able to do so. Jordan Russo with 0.68. Now, here was an interesting one. Paul Batfay came through, initially pledged a dollar forty nine, and then raised it, saying that we'd we'd done enough work to deserve a raise to four dollars twenty five. But he said the one forty nine and the four twenty five were linked, and I posed the challenge to you. Um, I, I believe I know what it is, but were you able to dig around and, and find the answer? I think I do know the answer. So I was thinking, where does the score one four nine go on to reflect four two five somewhere else? Uh, and well, it isn't Adam Gilchrist from his one four nine. He didn't. He wasn't the four hundred twenty fifth player, nor was the score four twenty five. It wasn't Ian Botham's one four nine out of four hundred one that England made in nineteen eighty one. It wasn't Bob Warmer who's uh, <laughs> one. I thought it might have been. So I thought one four nine. We talked about Warmer's one four nine a couple of weeks ago, but no, his cap number was four hundred sixty three. However, another innings at Leeds. I mentioned Botham in eighty one. Another innings at Leeds, a very famous one, mm. uh, was Kevin Peterson's one hundred forty nine in. 2012 during the, the Olympic Games of that year, England made 425 in that inning. So I think that Ooh. it's going to be the Peterson double of 149 out of England's 425 from Paul. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. That that is that is a very very good answer for what is an incorrect answer. I'm I'm very very confident of this, and and you'll be able to decide this, Paul. However, David Boone made 149 from 425 balls in 1989 against the West Indies. Uh, so that's your 149 and your 425. And the, the, the reason I'm confident is there's a little, bit of, a little bit of the message that I held back from you from Paul. This may have been oh. fair, it may have been unfair, but Paul said that he was so impressed by this performance that he named his dog after the participant. So either he had a dog called KP or a dog called Booney. And frankly, if you had the choice between a dog called Booney or a dog called KP, you know you have to have a dog called Booney. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Well, it, you could, yeah, it could be a dog called Clarence, David Clarence Boone, the great yep. keg on legs. It could be, uh, you wouldn't call a dog Kevin, although I went through a bit of a phase of calling yeah. 
um, calling my cats when I used to have cats uh, uh, human names for a while there I had a Michael I had a Julia um, so he, he might have been of that mindset and called his dog David or, or Kevin yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree though with that added information I, I reckon you're probably right but I like the idea that KP's 149 was out of 425 yeah. I mean it is one of I mean it was described recently oh I'm, I'm reaching for this I can't remember who it was maybe it was Wisdom said it was the best innings of the 20th century so maybe you know maybe it was the best innings of the 2010s anyway the point is is that it is a, a a very famous knock, far more famous than Boone's, put it that way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Look, you could be right. When you said you were confident you'd got it, I, I wasn't expecting you to come up with a different variation, and I'm very impressed. <laughs> so whichever of it it was, Paul Batfay, let us know. Thank you. Next on our list, Tim Vanderpump, whose name I love. Every time I see Tim Vanderpump pop up, I'm just like, yes, Vanderpump. It's like it's like a Dutch guy who's just celebrating all the time, you know, like like, like Van Wilder party liaison should have been Tim Vanderpump party liaison, if you see where I'm going with this. Now, the, the number that Tim put through, $5.17, 5.17. Any immediate thoughts, Adam? Well, look, I know what five one seven means to me. Yeah. Um. And I and I just thought, look, I'm just going to go with that and let you drill down and see where you take it because five one seven for one, of course, is what England made in the second innings at the Gabba in 2010, where Cook made a double. Uh, and Strauss and Trot also made centuries and uh, they batted themselves to a safe position and eventually a draw, which really set up their summer. But um, I, I'm just going to go with that and, and, mm. and see where you take it from there. And that's, of course, in the, the Peter Siddle hat-trick birthday match. It is. Um, that, that was in the first innings where Australia bowled England out somehow and then didn't manage to do that again in the second. So that, that's a very good shout for the 5-17. Um, but I was looking at bowling figures of 5-17, for 17, and my God, there are some good ones. Uh, Michael Holding took 5-17 for 17 in 1976 when Viv Richardson Co. came over and said didn't really say anything. They just had decided they were going to smash England after Tony Gregg made some very um, ill-advised comments about the West Indies, which he, he later recanted and apologised for. But uh, five for 17, Michael Holding took when they bowled England out for 71 in the third test. All of these involve yep. absolutely smashing a team, by the way. <laughs> Shane Watson took five for 17 in Cape Town in 2011. Of course. When they, yeah. when they bowled South Africa out for 96 and then South Africa turned around and bowled Australia out for 47 and went on to win the match. But Watto uh, took those wonderful figures of five for 17 when it looked like Australia would win. He was unplayable that day. Mm. Were you watching that? I mean, I was in, I was living in London that year, so I was watching it sort of in the middle of the day. It must have been the middle of the night, Australia time. Did you, did you watch that live yeah. or did you wake up to see the, the two crazy scorecards? No, no, I was watching. It was as good as what I bowled. In fact, the only time I saw what I bowled as well as that was uh, a day when he didn't clean up. It was uh, when Nathan Lyon took five wickets on Taboo in Sri Lanka. What I up the other end was just, I mean, on his day, he could he could make the ball move and hoop mm. like really no one else in Australian cricket at the time at about 140 clicks. I mean, he, he was somehow an underrated cricketer, but that's a whole different podcast. Yeah, I mean, I, I still remember the dismissal of Michael Carberry in the 2013-14 Ashes. It was a ball that just swung in about 
looked like about four feet somehow from outside mm. the off stump. So it, it, it could happen um, operating at a slightly lower pace than the others. So five for 17 for Watto. Uh, very relevant to our discussion earlier with Vish. Kemar Roach last year against oh, yeah. England took five for 17 when he helped bowl them out for 77 in the West Indies. And to go back to your man, George Lohman, Second mention on the show today in 1888, <laughs> took five for 17 in Sydney in a one-off match to bowl Australia out for 42. That's their second lowest score ever, Australia. Uh, 36 is, is the one lower score. That would have been consecutive test matches that Lyman. I think that 1886 test was the final test of the tour. Right. So that means in consecutive tests against Australia, he picked up seven for 36, then five for 17. He enjoyed <laughs> playing against Australia. And then the, to, just to cap it off, um, speaking Just to be about, clear, he played against no one but Australia, it yeah. should be noted. <laughs> they they <laughs> weren't playing against anyone else <laughs> in the 1880s. <laughs> against Bermuda, he was unplayable. Um, but speaking of consecutives, the, the, the famous spin duo of England in, in the 1950s, uh, Tony Locke and Jim Laker, took five for 17 one after the other in a series against New Zealand in 1958. So Tony Locke takes five for 17 at Lords. Jim Laker takes five for 17 in the next test at Leeds. They monstered New Zealand in that series. They bowled them out for scores including 94, 47, 74, 67 and 85 in a five-test series. Imagine being New Zealand in that. You're just like, oh, God, let us go home. They kept losing by an innings after bowling England out <laughs> for about 200. Like, it was just, just horrific. But Tony Locke, you know, people feel a bit sorry for him because he's the guy who gets one wicket in the test where Laker gets 19. But in that series, he, he has innings including 3 for 25, 5 for 17, 4 for 12, 4 for 14, 7 for 51 and 7 for 35. Uh, safe to say New Zealand weren't very good at that point or Tony Locke was very, very good indeed. I can't tell you which. Cleaned up. We'll be seeing a new Locke-Laker stand at the Oval, Jeff, by the next time you're here. They're probably still building that, I expect. I haven't mm. been to the Oval through the coronavirus lockdown, but they were, last time I was there, which might, might have been oh, might have been January, they were in the process of mm. uh, rebuilding the stand there next to the pavilion at the Oval. So thank you to our new nerd pledges who include uh, our Julios, Philip, Jordan, Dorothy, we mentioned before, Michael, uh, Elliot, Scott, Jordan, Paul, and Tim Vanderpump. Thank you so much for being part of it. But Jeff, we've got some revisits as well. Yes, let's have a quick look back at what we got right and wrong. Last week, uh, Abby Singh with his 6 for 51, we were talking about Bernard Bosanquet. Um, he replied, in fact, Ishant Sharma took 6 for 51 against New Zealand in 2014, which wasn't exactly why Abby put this number through, but it's because Ishant Sharma got none for 164 in the second innings and became only the seventh bowler to take five for and none for 100 in the same match. Rarely do you get a, a nerd pledge which captures the essence of the segment as well as that. Thank oh, you, Abby Singh. That's perfect. Absolutely and, brilliant. And also... Uh, Peter Siddle very nearly did that in that Brisbane Test match we just talked about. He, he took six for in the first innings and was uh, none for 90 in the second. So nearly nearly joined that club, but didn't quite. Uh, David Jones sent through a 3-0-0. We didn't actually hear back from David. We were talking about Don Bradman being stranded on 299 not out but we did hear back from Dave Brown and Patrick Rogers about how Bradman's last partner was run out Adam 
Yeah, so, I mean, they, they both sent through different passages. Uh, Dave Brown went back to the uh, On Top Down Under, the famous Ray Robinson book, and Patrick Rogers had some research as well. So, um, so goes the story. Alan Kipax had already been run out for a diamond duck when Bradman was going for his century. So there was context. There was there was backstory, you know, a few hours earlier. <laughs> um, so with Pud Thurlow, Bradman was on 298, uh, and he reached the last ball of an over. He went for a single, he turned for the second, but then he didn't want it. But Pud was, as it says in the book, was thundering down the track and had to turn back. So when the throw was accurate from Sid Kerno, it meant that Jock Cameron was able to whip the bales <laughs> off, which ended the innings and left Bradman stranded on 299 with Pud run out for naught. In that series, Bradman made 226 112, 2, 167 and 299. So all told, 806 runs, Jeff, at an average of 201.5. Ridiculous. <laughs> what the hell was a guy called Jock Cameron doing playing for South Africa? It's like, yes. <laughs> like wearing your South African kilt. Hey, Jock Cameron. <laughs> I'm the proud South African man. Like... Well, you know, in Peter Maritzburg, where I'm from, where my, where my clan goes back many a generation, by the, the heather and the grey rocks and the cold coastal air. <laughs> like, what are you doing, Jock? You're drunk. Go home. Um, thanks, thanks for sending through those corrections. Terry Hogan had a number of 265, which was described as the most alpha cricket performance ever. We were talking about a, a turn of a couple of centuries ago, batsman called Arthur Hill. Terry says, in fact, he was going on the grade cricketer uh, definition, getting a bit of podcast cross, cross-pollination here, that, that being alpha was scoring a century in a losing side. And so we talked about Sir Everton Weeks earlier, one of his offsiders, Sir Clyde Walcott, once scored twin tons against Australia and still lost the test by an innings and 82 runs. Australia made 758, including Richie Benno's first century. So Terry said, I can't imagine anything more alpha than that. And for the series, Walcott made 827 runs, including 500s, and still lost 3-0. I like the fact that that happened at Sabina Park in Jamaica. So I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but hey, we're here now. Um, at the Kingston Cricket Club, which is at to the deep mid-wicket there at Sabina Park, uh, there's, a, there's a display of bats on the wall there above the bar where every player who's ever made twin tons in a test match is recognised, whether it was a West Indian... Uh, or, or in a test match in the West Indies or anyone else. It doesn't matter where it was mm. or when it was. It, it, because it's in, in Jamaican cricket, uh, there's no greater feat than making a century in both innings. If you've done that, that's like finished, That's like completing cricket. That is the thing that, that, that sets you apart. So the fact that Walcott did that at Sabina Park, that beautiful ground there in Jamaica, I think is a nice little neat link as well. Thank you, Terry. Uh, Mark Stein sent through $2.75. We were guessing Gary Kirsten and Daryl Cullinan, who share that as their highest scores. It had a South African connection. It wasn't that number, though. It was at Durban, where Phil Hughes made twin tons in the match there we go as just yep. as you mentioned and his twin tons combined equaled 
275 runs in the match. Uh, Sarah Berman's 268. We were guessing a few things around Graham Yallop and the Nawab of Pataudi, Adam's favourite, and, and a, a tied match between Ireland and Holland. Sarah sent through a hint to say she grew up in Manchester in the 90s. Uh, so we've worked out that Michael Atherton's first-class top score was 268 not out against Glamorgan. He also took 268 first-class catches. So there's a neat little symmetry for you, Sarah. Fantastic. I think Sarah previously had 185 before upping it to 268, which again is another Atherton link. So thanks so much. You, you mentioned there, Jeff, the, the Ireland-Holland tie from 2013, which was another option we had for 268 last week, which we mentioned. Uh, that uh, was reflected upon by our great friends uh, at the History of Netherlands podcast who sent us a message on Patreon noting that that tied match was an absolute ripper with Rippon smacking a four off the second last ball and a six off the final ball to tie the game. So there's probably no highlights of that online anywhere, I don't expect. <laughs> but if there was, it'd be one of those uh, YouTube clips that, that goes round and round because that seems like an absolute cracker. Isn't that what every kid dreams of, Adam? A six off the last ball to tie. No, not so much, but, you know, they're, they're <laughs> and thereabouts. Uh, thank you to everybody who's sent through some nerd numbers. If you'd like to play Nerd Pledge, you just go to patron.com slash the final word. Join up. You can set your number. You can set how often you'd like it to recur uh, and have full control over what's going on there. And you can help support the show, uh, keep the lights on and, and keep us fed and healthy to go forward through this the rest of this weird winter in Australia and this strange summer in England and uh, whenever it is that we actually see each other face to face again. Yeah, that's right, I suppose, with uh, with things getting pretty real in Melbourne. Again, as we mentioned off the top, it's probably going to be a while, Jeff, before you're doing what we would consider to be normal work. So as we said, throughout the shutdown period, uh, the the patron's been invaluable. Indeed, we wouldn't be doing this podcast anymore if it wasn't for that. So thank you ever so much for everyone who's been involved. And, and Jeff, that's probably where we should uh, put a full stop on the show for this week. Uh, to the Lords Taverners, thanks for uh, now being part of the final word. Uh, great supporters of Calling the Shots. Indeed, if you haven't caught up with the final episode of Calling the Shots, that's now on our feed, which kind of brought the whole story to a close quite neatly with uh, commentators who've been involved in the last 10 years when we've now got women on the air where we never had before. We talked about statisticians and data and the influence of that on modern broadcasting. Thank you again for everyone who dropped us a line on Patreon uh, about the Calling the Shots miniseries. That's now come to a close. Although it must be said though, Jeff, that this Friday or this weekend, I should say, our, our encore edition won't be an encore edition. It'll be uh, the full interview we did with Ian Smith, uh, the great Ian Smith, the fantastic New Zealand commentator, um, was our first guest on Calling the Shots about three months ago and um, we decided to release that in full uh, this weekend on the final word feed so you'll be able to tuck into that this weekend. By the barest of margins, by the barest of all margins, that's going to be with him for the rest of his life. He should, he should get that tattooed across his chest, Ian Smith, and just rip, just rip his shirt open at parties. <laughs> we, do, we do talk about it. We, we, we talk about how... We talk about how he came up with, with that form of words, or more to the point, how he didn't, how it was kind of completely instinctive. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I was uh, I liked that. All those brilliant lines from him on World Cup final day, uh, even the ones that he didn't use that he still remembers. Like, he sort of drummed them up at the time, and I guess that's that's part of the magic of a brilliant mm. commentator. Um, yeah, and, and he's just a very generous, lovely, warm guest, so... Uh, I'm sure you'll get plenty out of that when we when we release it. Yeah, uh, listen in when that comes out in a few days. We'll be back with the regular show next week. Thanks to Bad Producer, the production company that 
gets us up and running every, every week, Dave Collins, who does the editing, Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards. Thanks to Seabus Super for supporting the show and the Lord's Taverners this week. So jump on their website, find it in the show notes and check them out. This has been the final word. I suppose we'll see you again. We will. We'll talk to you on the weekend. Thanks for listening. It's been a lot of fun. Talk soon.